Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Working in sponsorship is great. Yes, it's challenging, but there are loads of great aspects and it certainly beats working in some boring admin role in some boring office, right? I'm probably preaching to the converted. But for some, that can lead to staying in a role for a really long time, and when a move does eventually come, moving to something very, very similar. Now, someone who has avoided that path and gained a wealth of experience over some really great roles is Sarah Lewis, business development consultant, sponsorships, events, and luxury tourism specialist at Sursum Consulting. Now, Sarah joins us in the show later on, and the stories and experiences she shares are really insightful for both rights holders and brands, and there is lots of chat about activations and some of the challenges along the way, including her being a graffiti artist. Now, welcome to episode 53 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston. It's February 2018 already and it really does feel like the year is moving very fast or maybe it just moves faster the older I get. It is great having you tune into the show wherever you are in the world and it is always awesome to hear from you the listeners and someone who got in touch recently to say hi and so she gets a shout out is Jude Skipwith who was previously partnerships manager at Somerset House Trust who shot me a message on LinkedIn that said I've been listening to your great podcast, especially helpful to stay abreast of things when I've just moved to Singapore and am looking for new sponsorship opportunities. So I wanted to reach out and say what a great resource I've been finding it. Keep up the good work. Jude, thanks for the kind words and great you are finding the show useful and I hope Singapore is treating you well. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, working in sponsorship has some great perks that come about through your network. And one of those is being invited to corporate hospitality at events. And for brands, this can be an important benefit of your sponsorship and despite what your friends and family think, isn't actually all about heading to events and getting great seats, food and drink. So for rights holders, that's why it needs to be executed well. And Sam Irvine, sponsor of GM of product, after recently attending some corporate hospitality, has reflected on what makes great corporate hospitality and distilled it into a recipe for rights holders to follow. Here's the chef. You have been to your fair share of corporate hospitality events. What do you reckon your favorite food is when you go into corporate hospitality what do you look forward to most I, it's tough i mean you, you're making it sound like i i i'm a brown noser and i'm at these things all the time i reckon let the let the record reflect <laughs> that that is in case is in fact the case all right i've been quite lucky I, I i went to a fair few things in my previous role but sponsor has been very fruitful in that aspect i think for me it's not so much about the food at all, really. And it's funny, I reckon it's a place where you don't eat much at all. It'd have to, you're going to say pie. You've got to have a pie. No <laughs> love the party pies. I love <laughs> the party pies. I like, I like something different. And a good example uh, is a couple of Brumbies games we went to last year. And they did a build your own hot dog. And that, for me, it was so basic, but it worked really well until yeah. they run out. With until they run out, yeah. It's always <laughs> an issue. So, but you've been uh, to the Australian Open and you were lucky enough to enjoy some corporate hospitality while you were there. I'll tell you what, the last two years, I've been so lucky to be able to host some fantastic people at a fantastic event. Uh, and 
all of the pieces fell together on both occasions, actually. So for me, happening two years in a row at a completely different day, different time, whole different group of people both times, and for it to be absolutely top-notch doesn't sound like a coincidence. It sounds like some really good stuff that either tennis are doing, Melbourne Park are doing, or a combination of all the above. And you've spent some time reflecting on uh, your experiences recently at the Australian Open, hosting some of our clients and uh, enjoying the hospitality and the event as a whole. Are you much of a cook? I, I would say yes. I'm not sure if my wife agrees, but I mean, I do the majority of the cooking, but <laughs> maybe the kids don't agree so much. I would say I'm not too bad. I very rarely follow a recipe at all. It's normally just uh, a pinch, a dash. Uh, well, and ironic that uh, you don't follow a recipe, but you frame this blog in sitting back and thinking about some of those key things uh, that go into a recipe of good corporate <coughs> hospitality that you can probably repeat like any good recipe, mm. but maybe with a little bit of leeway about whether you put a dash or a pinch in here and there. Uh, and so you've reflected on your experiences at the Australian Open, put it into a recipe that hopefully the listeners can uh, look at, uh, massage and apply for the, to their own situations, right? Really good examples there, you're right, of being able to massage and, and put in your different portions perhaps. But I think it was really hard for me not to feel a little bit of post-Australian Open blues anyway this year. You're a having, big tennis fan. <laughs> I am too, right? And the men's final was, was pretty fantastic. The women's final was actually better, I think. But it was uh, every year I go down there, it changes so much in a positive way, the different things they do. And I challenge anyone to speak to an attendee at the tennis that didn't have a fantastic day and that didn't sit back in awe of all the cool things they're doing commercially, food, um, entertainment, bringing the kids in, everything like that. And so for me to be able to sit down and go, I'd love to know what were the positives about this event or my experiences in particular, then how do you apply that? Because I think I, I talked to you about it a number of times about how hard it can be to give away tickets to these types oh, of things yeah. when they shouldn't be. Yeah. And I talk a little bit more about that. But so for me, as you say, a recipe. So I guess I'm not sitting here trying to teach people to suck eggs or even explain some of the basics. For me, it was sitting down and going, what are the core things that I enjoyed that really, for me, aren't that hard to achieve? And if you apply them sort of in, in your own measurements, then hopefully you get some success like, uh, like we did. So speaking of measurements, what's the first thing that's in this recipe? One whole cup of planning. Right. Now, it sounds a bit basic, right? Just plan ahead, no duh. But you and I talked a bit about this earlier too, around wouldn't it be great to know how many people are going to come before you start inviting? Or wouldn't it be great to know, have a group of attendees or invitees already set up and agreed before you went and bought a box or before you went and agreed to take that as part of Contra, whatever it might be. Now, we can't always do that. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but really being able to have a list of, of key invitees and the reasoning behind why you might want them to come. It doesn't have to be written down, but in your head, is it new business? Are they current clients? Are you trying to help service your own staff and give back a little bit, a little bit of reward in that space? What are the reasons you're inviting those individuals? Plan ahead because there's always going to be last minute fails. Yeah. So it's even on the day, yeah. which happened to us. A little little shout out to one of our clients. She knows who she is. And what's going to really happen is if you've got a good list of of backups or if you've got some people that, that are able to come at short notice, then it's really going to help impact upon a, a really good day. And what about communicating with the guests about the other guests that are coming? Is that a good <laughs> idea? Definitely. We talked about this around conferences, but I think it's even more important around hospitality when you're in a smaller room with a smaller group of people. If you walk in knowing 
who's going to be there or who might potentially be there, what organisations are they from. You yourself can do a little bit of research. Helps me remember their names. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down on your hand until you get a sweaty, sweaty palm. So then what you're able to do as well, right, is work out, all right, what are you personally trying to achieve? If you're not the host, if you're an attendee, what are you trying to achieve out of out of today? Is it just some a day at the tennis or are you actually going to have some good conversations with some people, exchange some business cards and really do a little bit of networking? It's not always what the day's about, but you're right, being able to communicate who's there or who's possibly going to be there and also communicating the best way to attend. Do you take personal uh, public transport? Uh, where do you pick your tickets up from? Give, give, make sure they've got your phone number if there's any problems, those type of things. Great point because what I was going to – Add on to here. So I won't deduct two points, I'll just deduct one point. Because in your blog, you haven't mentioned this, but I only just thought of it then is we go to a lot of corporate hospitality events, but it's all just done on a phone call or a text or an email. Hey, come, do you want to, you know, come to this corporate hospitality event? But rarely do we actually get an appointment in our diaries with all those key pieces of information, contact phone numbers, where to pick up tickets, are there any dietary requirements? It's all just sort of, hey, the, the, the cricket's on or the tennis on or the football on uh, at 6 o'clock and you can get your tickets at the gate and we'll see you in the room. And I think, too, you're right around we all know what it's like if you're rushed to get to an event and the reason you didn't get there is you weren't told that it was a different gate than last no, year and things yeah, like I'm that. on the other side of the stadium. That kills me. The last thing you want to do is hot and sweaty, walk into a room, a little yeah. bit frustrated, whatever it might be. And just those basic steps as the host, really simple email, mm. really simple map, whatever it might be. All right. So one cup of planning. What's next? One a little pinch of diversity. A little pinch? No, just a little pinch or however much you, you want, you really. Are you a Salt Bay? Do you know Salt Bay? <laughs> I know Salt Bay. I'm not one. But it's hard not to laugh at those memes. So really what I mean by this is obviously fill the room with a variety of people, with a variety of backgrounds, organizations, reasons they might be there, for example. And we were quite lucky on a number of occasions throughout the year, not just at the tennis, to bring a mixture of current clients, you know, people you were speaking to around potential new business, any of those that have been really loyal staff members, whatever it might be, just get a good mix. So you're going to create a little bit of diversity in the room. Yep. We've had a cup, a dash, Oh, sorry, a pinch. pinch. What's next? The next is a tablespoon of exclusivity. Oh. Now, the reason this is only a tablespoon, I guess it's a really hard thing to come up with either at short notice or without having some extra money to spend there as well. And what I mean by this is making it a little bit more money can't buy than hospitality. In this space, it might be just a brief tour of behind the scenes, or it might be a gift that you've personally made for your guests coming, your guests coming along. Just something to make them go, oh, hang on, next time I get an invite from Jason, it might be a little bit different. It might not just be sitting in a box and talking sport or talking business, et cetera, right? It might be something really cool and different. And particularly for, I mean, where we live here in Canberra, there's the stadium that's shared by two of the main football codes, Rugby Union mm -hmm. and Rugby League. The corporate hospitality is very much the same. And we know that, you know, when we tell our partners and our friends that we're going to the corporate hospitality at the football or the cricket or, the, or whatever it might be, the tennis... They all think it's a fantastic, you know, feed up, silver service, watch the game in peace type situation. You probably watch about 25% of the game. So the differentiator isn't necessarily the entertainment that's on the field or on the court. Mm. It's in the box. And if you are sharing <laughs> a venue or you are 
uh, in a maybe a saturated market where there's lots of, of people offering corporate hospitality to maybe a smaller population, you really do need to think about some of those exclusivity items or exclusive items that you can put out that make people think that's different and I want to go to that. It's not just another meal and a few drinks, right? Goodness. I mean, a good example, and these are obviously limited, right? So I was lucky enough to sit on the court at an NBL game up in Brisbane. A big, big thank you to our clients at Brisbane Bullets there, but being able to, that sort of event, that sort of experience is second to none. And I constantly am speaking with either clients or, or colleagues that attended with us that bring that up all the time about how cool it was, how wicked that was. Yeah. That's money can't buy. That's a special sort of setup. And did that's you get on exclusivity. The, did you get on the court for We did in, at the end, right? It was awful. I did, how how many know, shots did you take? I took about 20 and, and I hit one. In? I hit one. one. Yeah. Wow. And they so, do say white, white men can't jump. <laughs> Apparently, they can't shoot can't, either. Can't shoot at all. So really, for me, be a little bit creative. It doesn't have to be – it could be just inviting up or getting the access to a player to come up to say a few words, things like that that don't cost you anything extra perhaps. So. Yeah, great idea, that, that exclusivity. Hmm. Okay, what's next on our recipe? I've, uh, I'm I've making put- a mess here in the kitchen. <laughs> Stuff is everywhere. So one teaspoon of like-mindedness. Now, similar to the diversity there as well, we obviously want – some people within the room with similarities. We obviously want some objectives or some outcomes from the day for ourselves and our, uh, you know, the clients that might be coming with us, our invitees. So really making sure that if there are any areas of common interest, that you're introducing those so that you're making introductions to those in the room and you're being the person that's helping them connect. Because it can be quite awkward when you go to some corporate hospitality and you might know somebody from around town but haven't really spoken to them before or been introduced and it really is the host's job to make sure that you're introducing people. It only takes 30 seconds, then you can duck off and leave Mm. those people to talk. I think that's uh, quite often overlooked but a really important thing that makes people feel uh, welcome and part of the group because if other people in that room know each other and they sort of form little groups and talk, it's hard to just, you know, sidle up. It's just like all the parties in my high school years (laughs) to be a really good host all it takes is a little bit of an understanding of why and how and who you should introduce just briefly you don't have to be holding their hands all night very good and the last the fifth and last ingredient fifth well i mean i think for me this is the hardest to find and the most difficult to portion control as well but can have the biggest impact upon the feeling of a hospitality or any type of sort of event you might attend and that's a dash of charisma Mm, what's that mean as I was sitting Does that come trying. in liquid form or powder form? Like, where do I find that? What oil is it in at the supermarket? It's a paste. It's, it's a, a paste, paste that you uh, that you can turn into a liquid <laughs> or solidified. So what I mean by this really is everyone's there first and foremost to have fun, right? Yes. That's the reason why there's either a sporting event or whether it's a music event. It's entertainment. Or, exactly. Yep. And you're not necessarily, you're first and foremost haven't accepted yes to come because you want some business outcomes or because you want to be seen in the same room. Might be because you want to do a, a wicked Instagram photo, who knows, but really you're there to enjoy that level of entertainment. And as the host and as an attendee, I guess you should be doing your little bit to make sure that you're contributing in a positive way to that. And that for me is just as simple as bringing some positive energy. If you're the host, if you're the one connecting people, you've got a smile on your face, you're actually there to help them and have a good time as well, but you're also just a slight little value add, just having a little bit of an understanding of behind the scenes or a fun fact, things like that. Mm. You don't have to be the comedian. You don't have to be the guy stealing the show or the girl stealing the show, but really just, just adding a little bit of energy in a positive manner I think is key. 
I was lucky enough to go to some corporate hospitality uh, in New Zealand around about this time last year, Chiefs versus maybe the Blues. Hi to our great clients there, the, the Chiefs in New Zealand. They had lots of different hospitality. So I basically volunteered to work uh, work experience <laughs> uh, for the night. And I was, they were like putting me on the door and helping move the chairs. And it was great just to spend time with their team behind the scenes, just seeing how they th- do things well, how they do things differently. One thing they did really well is they had a couple of big rooms, but they invited, and I might get this wrong, the three-man uh, pursuit team, indoor cycling for New Zealand, who uh, just missed out on gold by like you know the mm, width of yeah. a hair uh, at the recent world champs, well, at the time. And they just took those guys through the different rooms, introduced them to the crowd. They told a few stories. They had the same questions because the people in the room didn't know that you know, those questions were being recycled. But the room was fascinated by that group of people. And then they opened the floor uh, to questions. Uh, one uh, quite mature lady said, uh, how big are your legs? And he told her and she said, can you show me? In true uh, New Zealand fashion, irreverent, uh, the guy uh, dropped his strides and the lady came up and, uh, you know, put a hand on her quads and the whole room was <laughs> cheering. And now that's a story that people will tell for ages. And that is that dash of charisma that the MC allowed to happen, right? Mm. And so don't be scared to invite people from outside your sport or your event to to add value, particularly if they've got a uh, a, a local, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Flavor or influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So um, get them along, get them through the room. Mm. They want to promote Mm. themselves. It's not in conflict conflict with your football team, so it's all good. Mm. Okay, so we've got a pinch of diversity, tablespoon of exclusivity, a teaspoon of like-mindedness, a dash of charisma. And a cup of planning. And a cup of planning. That was the first one. What other advice have you got for people in the kitchen here? Just get cooking. Enjoy it. Make the most of it. Really, I guess, do it for the right reasons. And I guess that's where, um, I guess, we get hit up a lot of the time, or I do, to, to potentially buy a box or to buy some conference tickets and things like that. Being, being smart with why you're you, you're taking on this expense or you're taking on this responsibility because a lot of the time what we thought might be the hottest ticket in town on that day becomes so hard to give away and you end up pleading with people mm. to attend with you and you've absolutely lost the whole whole reason behind why you had taken up this hospitality or those invitations in, in the first place. So Very good. And if you'd like to read uh, that full recipe, download it for free. Uh, from Sam's cookbook of sponsorship. <laughs> that, that, that's another content piece you're going to work on over the year. Just head along to sponsorv.net, uh, head to the blog section, and you can read all about it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Daniel. Someone who has avoided staying in a sponsorship role for too long and as a result has gained a wide range of experiences is Sarah Lewis, business development consultant, sponsorship events and luxury tourism specialist at Sursum Consulting. Sarah has worked on some edgy events including Mudtopia, a New Zealand event based around celebrating and enjoying mud. She's also worked on the biggest event on the planet, the Olympics. She's also worked in one of the busiest airports in the world, London Heathrow, which welcomes around 70 million passengers a year, one of which is a regular Mark Thompson, our MD. He loves that arrival hall. Uh, But Sarah's also worked on smaller community-focused events, and all of that comes together to give her a wealth of experience and a very rounded view of the sponsorship industry. So I invited Sarah on the show to share that with you. Here's Sarah. Sarah Lewis, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. We always kick off, as you know, you've told me that you uh, listen to the podcast yourself, so that's uh, very reassuring for the host. But you, you would know that we always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you, Sarah Lewis, a little bit better. And the first one is, if you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would it be and why? I had a good think about this one, <laughs> and uh, I think the first thing that's sprung to mind, probably because it's intensely topical at the moment, um, is Donald Trump, um, and I think the ambition of uh, of wanting to be Donald J. Trump for the day is about righting some wrongs, making some intelligent and sensible policy changes, and then cutting off his hair and ending the day resigning as president. <laughs> you weren't wrong when you said you'd put some thought into that. That is a. I, I want to. I, I did wonder where that was going with. I'm going to be Donald J. Trump. I was like, well, this is going to be interesting. So, but I can. Uh, I, I can see that it keeps you up at night, and uh, you've got a plan in yeah. place. So, well done, Sarah. Second icebreaker right. question is, what was your first ever job? So officially, my first ever job where I got a pay slip was at Newwood Supermarket. I earned $3.89 an hour, which just sounds ludicrous, but you used to get double time on weekends and after hours, which was pretty much the only time I worked. And then I went on to a very illustrious career as a birthday party hostess at McDonald's. So um, I did basically the standard Kiwi uh, teenage job uh, collection before university. Very good. And so you've obviously progressed on from those roles. And let's set the scene for the (laughs) listeners a little bit. Can you provide a bit of a rundown of your roles and experiences leading up to your current one? Sure. So um, I recently turned 40 and it made me kind of think back and realise I've now been in professional life for over 20 years, which is a bit scary. Um, My first job, I was very lucky actually, my first job came about after an internship that I did as part of my degree and um, became a became a full-time job. So I, I went to work for the what were the DB Bitter Warriors at that time um, as a sponsorship and promotions coordinator. And it was a pretty unstable um, environment at that point of time because I went through a change of ownership. So I left there uh, and went into a job at TVNZ, which is New Zealand's state broadcaster, as an analyst and sort of worked my way around that place for about four years in various um, sponsorship roles, uh, working across everything from the America's Cup to the Sydney Olympics and working with broadcast partners. So that was my first foray into some real, you know, heavy negotiation around uh, sponsorship. And um, after a few years there, I went into APN, which was the Herald, um, and it's now called NZME. And and the same sort of thing. So I was there for a few years working in trade marketing and then as a sponsorship and events manager. So I got to work on some cool projects there. Um, I launched Canvas Magazine, The Herald on Sunday, and got to work across the Lions Tour, which was pretty epic. Um, And it's quite cool because I actually look back now and some of the sponsorships that started um, during my tenure in that role such as the sponsorship of the Summer Carnival with LSE Racecourse, the Warriors Partnership and the Vodafone Music Awards, um, those uh, partnerships still continue to this day. So it's going back nearly 15 years. It's quite nice to see some of that work still going. And I guess 
the common strand of those three roles was a guy called Rob Billington, who was my boss and became my mentor. Um, I, I still think he's one of the smartest men in sponsorship. Uh, he now is based in Perth, and um, he taught me pretty much everything I knew. And, and I wasn't stalking him, but I did follow him around those three <laughs> <roles>. <laughs> so, <laughs> um But he, he's a very smart man. And... Um, and then I uh, moved on to a role in telecom, um, so that, which is now Spark, and um, that was as the national events manager. So I went into pure events there for a while. It was pretty fun. The days of cell phone launches and, and some decent budgets. Uh, and then went through the classic telecom redundancy special that many people go through and um, took a year off to travel. So I went traveling around the world. And I guess... I intended to stay in Europe for a short time and ended up there for over five years. Um, and it ended up being actually probably the true highlight of my career, to be honest. Um, I got a job with BAA. So at the time I started there, they owned Heathrow, Gatwick and Stansted Airport. And my first role was actually managing all of the experiential and ambient advertising for the airports as long as, uh, along with that um the relationship with HSBC um, around the Jetty Partnerships, which is now a global um, deal. Um, and that was really, really interesting just because, you know, managing over 400 air bridges um, and the brand uh, representation on the interior and the exterior uh, involved a whole new world for me around quality control and reporting and it put a lot of discipline I guess, you know, when you go into roles in the UK and you've been a bit of a generalist, um, it really, they really focus you into specialist roles over there. So it was very um, a good learning curve. But after a year and a half, it got quite boring. <laughs> so, um, I um, was lucky enough to be seconded into a role which ended up being quite life-changing for me. So um, I ended up being seconded to head up the VIP General Aviation and Diplomatic Services for Heathrow. Um, and as part of that, I uh, went into a product um, development and management role for a VIP service. So I got to work um, on developing the product. So I worked with top chefs and interior decorators and developed um, 16 beautiful lounges throughout Heathrow and got to work with some amazing luxury brands and product placement and partnership deals. Um, and that involved working with the Foreign Commonwealth Office and Clarence House, and we delivered uh, the head of state and VIP arrivals and departures for the Queen's Jubilee uh, and the 2012 Olympics. So it was pretty uh, epic, world-class experience. And, um, yeah, I got to meet some pretty incredible human beings as part of that. And then uh, New Zealand started calling and um, I felt like I should come home. So I came back and uh, went straight into a role at New Zealand Rugby League as the GM commercial and got to work on the Four Nations here, which was amazing. And I'm probably one of the very few people to work at New Zealand Rugby League that um, I witnessed one loss during nearly three years of the Kiwi. So I'm pretty proud of that, that history. You, you got <laughs> out unscathed. You got out unscathed. <laughs> I, did. I did, yeah. So I feel very lucky and it was a, an amazing um, event to be part of. We, we ran the New Zealand part of the uh, tournament. I managed to do that while very heavily pregnant. So it was, um, yeah, it was a pretty epic experience and, and great to tour with the team. 
That's some some really wide and and varied roles while still sort of staying close to the core of uh, your skills and and a really great platform to uh, launch your own business. And obviously that led to you starting your own consulting business, Sursum Consulting. Tell us about that and the types of clients that you work with and, and what you help them achieve. It's, it's weird, isn't it? I, I struggle to explain what I do to people because it is quite far-reaching. Um, I, I encapsulate Sursum Consulting into two key strands. One strand, uh, I would say, would be uh, commercial development. So essentially looking at a, an event or a product and really understanding where its product positioning is and um, how to generate additional revenue streams or maximise and optimise the revenue stream. Um, and that could be through broadcast sponsorships, it could be through um, general partnerships, it could be through merchandise strategy. Uh, and then I, I call it my trade, so my tools, uh, which is event management. And I think eventies are a certain type of person and once you've been on the production side of the coin, it's pretty hard to give it up. <laughs> There's a kind of buzz associated with it. So I do both of those elements um, and uh, bring on contract resource to assist me uh, as and when needed um, to take on various projects. Um, in terms of uh, client base, so quite varied. Um, my first clients uh, were Destination Rotorua uh, and the Stephen Adams uh, Invitational event. Uh, the work I do for Destination Rotorua is very much in the luxury tourism space, so developing a, a strategy for them around uh, optimising that market in, in their region. Um, Stephen Adams Invitational was pretty spectacular event to launch with. We got to have uh, access to some incredible athletes, pretty much the who's who of the last 10 or 20 years in sport, headed up the corporate teams and spent a good 48 hours playing golf and eating and drinking and optioning off amazing items and just hanging with Stephen Adams, so that was pretty cool. Um and the other events I've been involved with, uh, Mudtopia, which was uh, in Rotorua in December last year. Uh, I do, I'm do. i doing a bit of work with um, a business partner of mine, Nick Rowland, on a couple of conferences uh, called the Partnership Huddle. And also, uh, I'm the media manager for the Queenstown Winter Festival. So quite a bit of variety there, as well as working on a brand development project with a group called Hoop Nation, so in the, in the basketball world. Very good, and we will uh, touch on the partnership huddle towards the end of the podcast. We'll give that a bit of a plug and tell people what it's all about. Now, Sarah, you described that experience with the Stephen Adams Invitational. It sounds very fancy, VIP, rubbing shoulders with important people, playing golf. That's not what working for yourself is supposed to be like, because starting your own consulting business from the outside, it does, as you described, it look really attractive to a lot of people who work in the industry. And a few episodes ago, we spoke to Aaron Warburton, who shared some of his challenges after only launching about nine months ago. And in prep for this chat with you, I noticed a post on LinkedIn where you mentioned that launching Sursum Consulting has presented some challenges that you never actually imagined. I was hoping that you might share some of those challenges and, and maybe some advice that you can offer others on that front. Admin, admin, admin. That's the number one challenge for me. 
I hate it, I procrastinate, my accountant yells at me, uh, all of those things. And I think that, that working on versus working in your business challenge that a lot of small businesses have and knowing when to bring in external help. I think that's the, the biggest challenge uh, from my point of view. I, I obviously engage with specialists, so I have a graphic designer, I have uh, a lady that I work with, Alice Mackay, who's a PR and, and communications guru. Uh, so I do bring in different people. It's knowing when to bring the people in um, and what resource you know you need for a particular project, which you often don't always know at the point of quotation. So that was the other thing. So actually understanding the value or the cost of your time because it's not as simple as an hourly rate based on what you might have been earning in a salaried position um, because you have to account for all of the other time and costs that, that come in. So it's just that basic business management thing, um, which I think is very, you know, it hits a lot of people at that point of typically the 12-month mark when they realise that the growth that's happened is has expanded beyond the capability of one individual. So I'm sort of at that point now where I'm looking at, you know, the administration side of things and, and how I can bring someone in. Uh, and also just managing your time between very diverse and potentially demanding clients. You have to be very uh, disciplined and clear in your communication and managing expectations around how much time you're dedicating to what otherwise you could end up working 24 hours a day <laughs> i can uh, <laughs> i've had one or two uh businesses start just like yours and you know to start with one or two people and i can uh definitely to re- relate to some of those challenges and and it's good advice that you've provided sarah in your first year you traveled to seoul for the Incheon ifea conference how did that come about in your first year so very early on in starting uh, SUSM, I was approached to change from being on the advisory board for the Mudtopia project to actually taking on the role of festival director, uh, looking after the commercial side. So well, I was a co-director, there was a logistics and production um, director, and we worked very closely with a gentleman called Professor Yong, um, who was instrumental in the uh, design and delivery of the Boryong Mud Festival in South Korea and very well-respected event professional in, in Korea. He is also the president of uh, ICEA for Asia and he asked me, along with Mayor Steve Chadwick uh, from Rotorua, to come and speak about not just Mudtopia but also about music festivals and the scene in New Zealand. Uh, So I spoke uh, to the conference specifically about what is unique about New Zealand events and and how do we approach them potentially differently uh, to other markets in the world Um, and continued on as part of that visit as the official delegation uh, to do the review of Mudtopia. So you've mentioned Mudtopia a couple of times, and I've held this question back because I know it's a big part of your work. The first ever Mudtopia Festival was held in December last year, so that's 2017, if you're listening to this podcast a couple of years later. Sarah, can you first, before we talk about it in detail, can you just fill us in on what Mudtopia actually is? 
Yeah, so it's a pretty, well, I say it's a unique concept. It's been in existence in Korea for 20 years in a different sort of guise. It is a festival that celebrates the uh, mud industry in Rotorua, so the thermal therapeutic mud used uh, for bathing uh, and as face masks for skin cleansing. And it has, obviously, incredible properties for healing and um, softening of skin. And many uh, years ago, a gentleman um, at Rotorua Council named Jason Cameron came up with the idea of creating a festival that was a celebration of all of that and combining it with a promotion of the local spa and wellness industry, but also turning it into a bit of a party, so adding music into the mix. Um, and so the last the last uh, December event was the first event of its kind anywhere outside of Korea. Uh, it was a very challenging event to work on because it was the first year event. It was funded by New Zealand's major events fund, so a huge amount of stakeholder engagement required at government level. It was also funded by the Rotorua Lakes Council, so uh, again, working with local government. And the funders and stakeholders had fairly high expectations in terms of visitation in year one and also in partnership revenue. And I think um, we delivered <laughs> remarkably well in terms of attendance um, and evolved the concept into three propositions, party, pamper and play. And the key component of the Mud Festival in Boreong is gigantic inflatables where people wrestle in the mud, think uh, that TV show Wipeout. So think of that, yeah, where they're kind of, you can do the gauntlet or you can go down a massive slide or you can just wrestle in the mud. There were several uh, bespoke inflatables designed especially for these activities. So it sort of had something for everyone. Now, considering it's a pretty, uh, well, it's a very unusual event, what sort of challenges are presented in sourcing sponsors and partners on that front? The, the biggest challenge is you don't have the asset base to communicate what you're trying to achieve. So there's no photos, there's no video. We used a bit from Boreon, but our festival was quite different to theirs in lots of ways, just because of Kiwi culture is quite different, Korean culture. So when you're trying to sell a vision um, to a sponsor, and it's not even clear in your own head, <laughs> it can be incredibly challenging. Um, and that was the feedback that came through with a lot of the partners that were spoken to, and we worked with a, a sponsorship agency partner to help us, uh, was really interested, sounds incredibly intriguing, can't wait to see some photos and some video and come and talk to us next year. So that was incredibly difficult. We were very fortunate that we had three very supportive uh, partners that took a risk and we worked really closely with them to make sure that we delivered sponsorship benefits that were relevant, integrated, um, value-add and you know, also spoke uh, to the brand that they brand and communicating the messages that they were trying to get across it, and and I believe we achieved that for the three major sponsors. So you've worked on some pretty edgy community events like that, and communities are governed by politicians who uh, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but quite often have you know grey hair and grey suits, and uh, they're not necessarily known for pushing the envelope. They play a fair 
uh, a fairly straight bat, play it fairly safe. How do you overcome the the reservations of conservative elected members to proceed with something edgy like that? So I was lucky before Mudtopia that I had been working at Tauranga City Council for a year uh, and had some experience in this space because you quite rightly point out it's not like the corporate world and it is incredibly challenging because the elected members at the end of the day have to listen to the voices of a diverse range of individuals in their city or their their, their area uh, and they could have very different agendas or reasons to love or hate what you're trying to achieve um, and it involves a huge amount of lobbying prior to any presenting in a public forum. You have to have a very clear understanding of what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to achieve it and what it's going to cost. You have to remember that every penny you spend is scrutinised by a very uh, critical media that really just love nothing more than picking holes in policy and decision-making by elected members. And I think that was something really new for me. Um, I'd worked at Heathrow, The Herald and TVNZ, so I was pretty used to media beat-ups. But um, on a local level, the local media, you know, there's not a huge amount to report. So anything that happens in council chambers certainly gets reported heavily. And that was the case with Mudtopia and the Paradox Street Art Festival that I worked on in Tauranga. I think the key is understanding how it fits in with the theme for the city and where it will take them in terms of their strategic vision and aligning very clearly with those elements. Uh, and yes, transparency and just being really, really clear, having those conversations, as I say, before anything gets voted upon or publicly acknowledged and um, also reminding elected members that while it's fantastic that we to provide strategic uh, advice and guidance to the operational delivery staff at a council, uh, they, they shouldn't be involved in day-to-day operations. <laughs> I bet you that's fun uh, wording that nicely. <laughs> yeah. So governments don't normally host events uh, with a revenue-generating Focus, but you've worked on on one or two. Can you explain what that was? Yeah, so the the Paradox Street Art Festival uh, was working with the people that have the biggest Banksy collection in the Southern Hemisphere. Pretty cool, easy group of people, and we could have just commandeered the art gallery and hung some incredible artwork, but we decided to change it and and do something a little bit different, and. That involved some investment. Uh, a lot of councils have a major events fund these days. That seems to be a standard funding model. And whilst you know we required some funding for that from that uh, commercial from that pool of money, we also required investment to make the event as big as we wanted it to be. So, and exactly the same as Matopia, really. So. It was a challenging thing to do outside of the main centres in New Zealand because it had never been done before. Uh, And quite rightly, as you say, people kind of tend to look at council-run events and think, well, hang on a minute, surely they just should be funded 
and we shouldn't be chasing the commercial dollar. And I really hit up against huge pushback from the arts community locally when I went out to market for sponsorship who felt that, because I also managed the major events fund, I was giving and then competing. Um, the key thinking behind delivering these events is to show local event managers and creators that uh, there is an appetite for investment if the events really deliver something quite unique and special and, and put the city on the map. So we got some buy-in because we tried to sort of angle it in that way and, and show it as a positive thing. Paradox ended up being probably one of the most highly visited arts events outside of the main city centres uh, in New Zealand. Over 50,000 people visited Tauranga Art Gallery in 10 weeks, which was what the, the usual visitation for 12 months. So it was incredibly successful. The sponsors we engaged with, and don't get me wrong, I had pushback from some of the corporates that we went to talk to, but the sponsors that we had on board included a legal firm, uh, the local educational institution, Toyoha Mai, uh, Office Max, uh, and PowerCo. PowerCo was an interesting one because they are a B2B essentially, or um, not quite a monopoly, but they, they provide the power line. So they don't actually have customers um, other than the power companies. But they had strategy based around brand recognition for what they do so that they're not seen as the big bad wolf. And they really aren't the big bad wolf. They're an incredibly uh, progressive organisation. So it was, yeah, it just involved a lot of talking, a lot of understanding, and then just kind of biting the bullet, taking a few knocks on the chin and keep getting on with the job. And and that's essentially what we had to do for both Mudtopia and Paradox. And I think the proof is in the smiles of on the faces of the people that enjoyed an incredible experience. And I'm really proud to say that that is the case with both of those events. And the smiles and the incredible experiences that you deliver, particularly for a young event like Mudtopia where you've only had uh, one instance of it certainly starts to build a platform but there's going to be reviews people are going to sit back and say has this met our expectations did it deliver what we wanted it to deliver so I've got a a, a tough question for you because in my research I saw that there were some news articles uh, following Mudtopia that revealed that the event actually ran at a loss and that a lot of tickets were actually given away now the listeners particularly, we all know that sometimes events like this need time to grow and it's an investment over time uh, and, and it needs a chance to solidify it as, as, as an important event in the calendar. But losses and free tickets do make, as you mentioned before, uh, good stories for journalists maybe in small markets where there might not be a lot to uh, report on uh, and local politicians were quoted in those stories as well. How do you manage all of that when you're talking to either existing sponsors who are on multi-year deals or even when you're going out and negotiating new sponsors? How do you manage what we all know is maybe not necessarily an important point because the event takes time to grow, but on the surface doesn't look great? Yeah, it's it's stressful. At the end of the day, the sponsors are looking to uh, achieve uh, brand awareness or sales generation or positioning community engagement. Profitability of an event 
can be neither here nor there in terms of their measurements of success. So for the sponsors we had in particular, which were AMI, Toyohamai and Hong Kong Airlines, they all, we were really clear with them as, as the event was building up that, you know, ticket sales weren't as anticipated for Matopia. And, uh, but we had a really strong and solid strategy for making sure that the event itself was a fantastic experience. And that involved some promotional activity, which um, had a huge comp strategy attached to it. And at the end of the day, we exceeded the anticipated number of uh, attendees. And I'd say 90% or 95% of the people that went had a fantastic experience. And the other people that, you know, didn't have a great experience and typically are the vocal bunch um, uh, are people that really didn't kind of get it or they had a different expectation. So it was really important in the post-analysis understanding the good, the bad and the ugly and being really honest with our sponsors about that because I see partnerships as two organisations working together to continuously improve and refine a concept to the point where it becomes, you know, potentially 100% satisfaction for, for a participant. So it's important to be honest. It's important to be direct. It's important to be really clear that you can't control what politicians say in the media uh, as much as you might try. Um, and that's, again, about managing the politicians in terms of uh, being clear and lobbying and explaining what you're trying to achieve and and how negative um, comments in the media can actually be quite damaging to something that potentially could have fantastic reward. So with sponsors and funders on multi-year deals, we're going through a post-analysis process now, and it's, it's all about we did this really, really well, we did this really, really badly, we're going to change this, this and this. Does this still align with your strategic positioning? Can we help you achieve your objectives? And if so, negotiating or renegotiating a continued partnership. You rightly pointed out at the start of that answer that sponsor success isn't necessarily linked to event profitability. And we do know that uh, around the world, there's a number of particularly privately owned sports teams, even uh, uh, peak organisation-owned sports teams are quite often run at a loss, but sponsors can be very successful out of that relationship. With events, are there certain objectives that you think are better or more easily achieved through event sponsorship than maybe going and sponsoring a charity or a sports team or something like that? Hmm. You're right to say about the sports teams. I think in my previous role at Heathrow, I know some of my clients used to collect football teams for fun. <laughs> Um, I think the key thing about event sponsorship, and, and this potentially could be replicated with a team sponsorship, but very much an event sponsorship is about creating magic memories. So it's taking a moment in time uh, where you transform people's experience from the day to day. And in this world, everyone wants measurability. They want to have a metric attached to something. They really want to understand return on investment, which is great. But one thing, and, and I refer back to the gentleman I, I mentioned earlier, Rob Billington, he really taught me um, about sponsorship, is nothing beats 
that moment when you're at an event with your friends or family and you just have that moment of elation and you have that incredible experience and it's immersive. And I remember as a child going to events and getting a goodie bag or having an interaction with a radio station or a brand and maybe it might be something as simple and basic as a sticker or getting my face painted or as incredibly um, strategic as you know, a membership program or something like that linked to an event. And I think the key uh, thing that an event can deliver that something like social media in isolation cannot is that transformation of emotion. And um, I think, you know, product placement in movies is possibly a similar thing. I think it's all about capturing someone's imagination at a moment in time when they're very receptive. So considering that that magic moment of time and that emotion and, and that connection is, is something unique that quite often events can deliver that other uh, potential marketing channels can't, do you think there's certain brand categories that are better suited to considering trying to create that connection through event sponsorships as opposed to other types? I think there's some really easy, simple ones. So... Telco is easy. You can really transform uh, someone's event experience with the use of technology in their hand. The the new integration of virtual reality, near-field communications, all of those technologies that can enhance an experience at an event are incredibly powerful. So it's a bit of a no-brainer for those sorts of industries. AMI was a good example at Matopia. We wanted people to keep their items safe while they played in the mud. And so we created the AMI stow-and-go system there with them. And that was perfect. It fit beautifully. I think any category can get into sponsorship. And I'll give you an example. When I was at New Zealand Rugby League, uh, the primary sponsor of the Kiwis is Pertec. And you might be familiar with them. They are an Australian and New Zealand company. They are owned by some pretty cool guys who are sports lovers and Pertec is a company that uh, produces and maintains hoses, hydraulic hoses, pretty much as unsexy as you can get in terms of a category and God knows how do you turn that into a great leverage program. So uh, I'll give you an example of how we worked with a, a very unsexy product and brand that really is a B2B brand um, and brought it to life. Uh, we essentially looked at the structure of the organisation, which is based around a franchisee model, and we looked at what they were trying to achieve with the franchisees around engagement and developed a programme with, with a reward system uh, that allowed them to uh, engage their customers and every franchisee could win great experiences um, through the partnership with the Kiwis, be it come to a training or hosted at a table at an event, all of that kind of thing through an, a, a franchise of the month type program. We also wanted to reach the community. So we worked with Pertec on a community initiative uh, where they rewarded our volunteers and with something as simple as supermarket vouchers. Uh, and the local franchisee could turn up and present the award to the, the volunteers. It also got our club community engaged in what we were trying to do with social media. 
and that was highly successful. And then we did very simple leverage activities at the Four Nations where the Pertec general manager um, hosted the couch on the sideline experience. So there were lots, and, and the local franchisee in the areas that we were in could invite their customers to the changing rooms and, and things like that. So we got to do some pretty cool things. So, yep, just goes to show you can do anything with a category if you really put your mind to it. Yeah, and on the surface, that would appear to be quite a hard sponsor to activate, as you said, pretty unsexy hydraulics and, and hoses and, and things like that. Another one is companies that have maybe a monopoly in the market. Now, I'm not suggesting that any particular sponsor is guilty of doing this, but there are markets where sponsors have a monopoly, but they still engage in sponsorship. And often that means they aren't necessarily looking for concrete goals like lead generation or sales or building a database. But there is a danger that they almost treat it as a donation and they just engage in the sponsorship, pay their sponsorship money as a good corporate citizen and people see their their own internal staff and, and the bosses see the logo and they feel good about it. The danger is that they don't actually activate the sponsorship and get some sort of return out of it, which then puts it at risk of uh, probably not renewing. How do you work with and, and activate partners that have monopolies so that everybody is getting something out of that relationship? So Palico, who sponsored the Paradox Street Art Festival, are sort of a monopoly because they own the power line. And coming up with the activation plan for that partnership was challenging. Uh, we, power companies own hideous items of you know horrible, ugly metal boxes all around town. And if you... Have a look around town at where they sit. They tend to be in fairly prominent locations, like on the sides of streets, and and they take up a lot of space, and and they don't beautify the environment. So we worked with Powerco on a beautification project where we brought in international street artists to paint these ugly power boxes around town, and uh, actually change people's perception of what an ugly power box can look like. So that was one way that we could activate that partnership. Another way that we activated that power partnership is we had a power code treasure hunt and we painted, um, I got to be a bit of a graffiti artist actually, it was cool fun, but um, I got to paint the Paradox Triangle and number them all around Hodaha and people had to use Instagram to hunt all of these um, triangles which were in prominent positions where our sponsors were, so on the tour of my campus and on these Palco power boxes as an example and it's a legal firm that, that was the partner. It brought to life, I guess, what they were and educated people a little bit about what they do. Uh, so there was an element of uh, good corporate partnership there and, and citizenship and, and putting some money back into the community. But it's about linking it back to what they do and actually solving a problem because... Essentially, their power boxes are graffitied on all over town uh, with people just tagging their names. But there's a bit of a code uh, that exists between street artists where they people won't graffiti over other people's art. Um, there is a code of honour connected to that. So that prevented that ugly graffiti uh, happening in their asset um, base around the city. What uh, are there any other great examples or, or, or 
one of your favourite activations, whether it was one that you were involved in or just one that you experienced or, or read about? What did they do? What was the objective and why do you think it was so well executed? I think one of the simplest ones, it wasn't complicated at all with AMI Sell and Go. I think it worked so well because it made sense. I think that's the key. I've done all sorts of elaborate activations where it's kind of gets a bit complicated and if the link is rational and logical, uh, the other thing that, that that activation did was people were queuing to um, put their bags into the stow-and-go area. It gave the AMI local staff a chance to circulate with people in the queue, and they got to talk to people about their insurance requirements. So it was very, very simple, and I think it achieved their objective of brand awareness, brand preference, and extending the education process for people um, by having that one-to-one conversation with their local office. So I was, I thought that was a really nice one. Um, I love working with educational institutions and uh, working with Toyota My, the activations that we did with them, both that they were a partner of Mudpapia and Paradox Street Art Festival. We ran a community event with them for Paradox, where all parts of their uh, student body got to get involved so their chief students could prepare the canapes or the, the food. Their media students covered it from a media perspective. Their art students were involved in the art side of things. And I love it when we have all of those touch points where we can actually bring a partner up to the activation completely to the point that they're essentially running an event of their own. And I think that's what works really, really well. It's about that really through-the-line integration. Now, you've worked in the UK, Australia and New Zealand. Is there much of a difference in how sponsors in those different regions view their investment in sponsorship? I think Kiwis are really relaxed (laughs) compared to Australia and the UK. So I think that's something that's changing, but... I really noticed that when I returned. I think uh, in the UK, people have a fairly sophisticated understanding of, of how to leverage a sponsorship because it's done incredibly well um, in you know, professional football um, and they really understand that this is what a sponsorship looks like and how to activate it through membership and those sorts of things. I've worked quite a bit in Australia, obviously, through the NRL relationships there. I found the the people that we worked with there had a very strong understanding about how to leverage their sponsorships and get the most out of their investment. And I think it's a global world. Now, there there are some tiny cultural differences, I think, uh, but at the end of the day, everyone understands, through obviously through social media and the internet, has a really shared understanding about how to get the most out of their investment. You also, in your travels, worked on the 2012 Olympics. What are some of the things you you learned or, or realised in that work that maybe aren't obvious things around sponsorship at such a large global event compared to working on smaller local events? So 2012 Olympic manuals could stop traffic. They're so huge. Uh, I actually am blown away by the level of detail. I also got to work on a UEFA Champions League final, and it was a really similar situation. 
So the ability to manage category exclusivity on such a minute level is mind-blowing and phenomenal. Uh, the legal contracts for those partnerships can exceed hundreds of pages. Uh, they they have been burnt through previous events so many times that they've refined it to a, a perfect art. I absolutely love the way that people try and guerrilla market around these events. It cracks me up. Uh, a really great example was Pack and Save's leverage around uh, the rugby and how they, you know, refer to a rugby event. And it was done extensively in London uh, where people referenced the major event happening in the city without actually saying the word Olympic or using the rings. So people will go to extreme lengths to, uh, to try and work around the rules. But when you're working with a group of sponsors like the Olympic sponsors who obviously are the likes of McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Visa, you know, they, they know their stuff so well and inside out and the uh, policing of that leverage activity is extensive. And as you can imagine, uh, when you have a relationship with someone like a JC Decoe, in an airport space who generate millions and millions of dollars annually for the airport through the sale of advertising. Those exclusion periods for heavily invested uh, partners, the likes of HSBC with the GT sponsorship, we were we were at a point with HSBC where we were starting to have conversations about how we would have to remove all of their logos off every airbridge in London. We managed to work around that because we explained to the IOC that essentially it would take us 18 months to remove them and 18 months to replace them. So that would mean three years of our sponsorship deal would be eradicated by the Olympics. And so we managed to get an exception in, the, in that case. But I, you know, there were other partners like Mastercard had a very large installation that was semi-permanent at Heathrow that had to be removed. Um, the likes of Samsung, you know, though all of those brands, you're really talking a pretty major uh, negotiation with the IOC. So it's just it's the scale of that and, and the way in which it's placed. I wonder if there's any big brands in the world that watch very carefully about the announcement of the next host of an Olympic Games and might be making notes to run out and sponsor everything at the the airport of the city where it's being hosted in anticipation of uh, being able to keep signs up like HSBC did. I can tell you right now that is exactly what they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, because host cities are very well, uh, it's very well in advance, uh, they'd have to have incredible foresight. But um, when it comes to, like, a Rugby World Cup even, you know, there's still some consideration around that. Well, over the journey, what are some trends or, or changes that you're seeing from what you've experienced over your career that you're seeing now in the sponsorship space? What are some of those trends that are starting to occur? I think the biggest thing is the link to social media, and that's something I've had to play massive catch-up on. Um, I, I think it's how they utilise all of the different mediums of partnership in, in different ways and, and making sure they work in harmony the changes, I think, for me are a big movement away from traditional signage. A logo on a jersey, yep, has a lot of value and a lot of power, 
but it doesn't say a lot about who you are. Um, I'd like to see people become more creative in that space and how you actually, instead of slapping on a logo, maybe doing something a bit more creative and, and have had some ideas along those lines. For me, uh, the investment in rights is diminishing for smaller events. So people... Now that they've understood that the, the success of a sponsorship is only what you make of it in terms of your leverage plan, it's not just the list of benefits in your contract. I think that brought people to the point now where they really want to pay a lot less for the rights of sponsorship. And I think that's going to pose some really interesting challenges for events that aren't the Olympics or the Rugby World Cup that have huge television audiences. The proliferation of the way people absorb media is certainly going to have a high impact on sponsorship. Uh, if you can get away with guerrilla activation, utilising social media while people are watching a sporting event uh, on their phone or their iPad, for example, then why, why pay for the rights? So I think that's going to have a big impact. And, and we see it now with the kinds of sponsors that are popping up on jerseys and where that's originating. So if you um, follow the Premiership League in, in the UK, huge amount of brands have got foreign language logos on their jerseys. And that's because China and uh, the Middle East are really recognising the power of influence that those teams have in their local market. So the internationalisation, that's the word, of um, using teams and events to promote a brand is, is certainly changing. You know, a place where lots of trends and, and new ideas are discussed are industry gatherings, and you and a friend of us here at Sponsor, Nick Rowland, are launching an exciting new initiative in New Zealand called the Partnership Huddle, and it's billed as a, a game changer. That always sounds very exciting. Why and how will it be different to other sponsorship-focused, and I know I'm not allowed to call it a conference because, in fact, you're calling it a unconference, but, but how will it be different and, and what will it deliver for people that come? Essentially conferences tend to be about people talking at you, giving some case study examples, talking about their own strategy for their own organisation and then everyone dashes outside in the break and checks their email and then they catch up with people at the end of the day and that's where a lot of the magic happens. So we wanted to address that trend and Nick and I had attended a couple of conferences together recently and, and thought about how we could change it up a bit because there's some content which can be relevant. A lot of conferences run simultaneous streams of different content and that can be great but it can also provide clashes. So we wanted to create something that united a group, created a community and provided a single day of engagement for people. So it wasn't two or three days out of the office. Uh, it was one day and it was interactive. So that is where the partnership huddle came from. Um, the day is broken up into four key elements. The morning is, um, we're calling it a master's blackboard session. So that's the main part of the day where you're being talked at. But it's very short bursts with industry experts and sponsorship actually giving tip lists as opposed to case studies saying if I was going to do this this is how I would do it and we're pretty excited about the people we've got lined up to speak uh, in that section unfortunately we're just working through some detail with a few of them so we'll announce all of that list next week 
The second segment is around influences, and that's, I guess, one of the key trends I, I didn't mention before is the use of individuals that have social media followings to promote brands and products. Uh, we are getting some key influences in the room, and we're going to actually have a workshop session with them where we talk through what is working, what isn't working, because it's all a little bit experimental at the moment, and tell us your horror stories and your big successes, uh, and opening that dialogue because, of course, it's a direct relationship. Then we've got a really long lunch because everyone wants to check their email at lunchtime, but they also want to chat to everyone else in the room. So we have that, and then we have what we call speed flirting, where everyone in the room gets to meet everybody else, and we've got a pretty fun and unique way to make that happen. And the evening, uh, we're running a Dragon's Den where some pretty high-profile brands, and I can announce two of those brands, um, will be represented uh, by our dragons. Uh, one brand is Goodman Fielder, and uh, the other brand that will be in attendance is PAB. And I think we're safe to announce that we have a, a car brand on board and, and one other large brand. And I think a lot of brands don't take the time to attend conferences these days. They tend to uh, spend time at their industry-specific conference related to their category as opposed to the generalist ones. And we're pretty excited because we know we've secured some fantastic brands to be in the room. So it won't just be sponsorship speakers. Um, it will actually be right um, and rights holders. It will actually be the brands with the budgets. And that's what the Dragon Den is all about, uh, providing an opportunity to refine and practice your pitch while your uh, peers watch you and drink wine. <laughs> it all sounds very exciting. I, uh, I I can't get over there for it, but I, I, I wish I could. A couple of things that are really important is uh, when is it, where is it, and where can people go to find out more about the event? So it's on the 28th of March in Auckland at the Hilton Hotel. Um, the best place to uh, find out about it is uh, through Event Finder. So just type in the partnership huddle and you can purchase tickets there. There's two price points. Um, and uh, if anyone would like a special code uh, to get a, a first uh, sponsored uh, event discount, please contact me through LinkedIn. Very good. Because uh, we will put links to uh, all of that information uh, in the show notes, including how to get in contact with you. So, Sarah, if people do want to get in touch with you, find out more about the work that you do at Sursum Consulting, uh, what can they do? How can they get in touch? I love LinkedIn. I think that's the best <laughs> the best way. So, Sarah Lewis is a fairly common name, but if you look up, uh, I think there's eight Sarah Lewis's at my local gym. <laughs> but um, so, the best way is probably to email me, and that's at Sursum, S U R S U M consulting at gmail.com Sarah Lewis business development consultant sponsorship events and luxury tourism specialist thank you so much for taking us inside your experiences in the sponsorship industry thank you thank you for having me it's a pleasure and thank you for having this podcast it's absolutely what our partnership paddle concept is all about and building a community so thanks Daniel appreciate it Love that chat with Sarah. Sarah's had some really broad experiences and it clearly gives her a very rounded view of the sponsorship industry. Some great insights, advice and stories about activations and some of the challenges along the way, including uh, discussing with stakeholders about turning events into generating revenue as opposed to being seen as a free event for the community 
to attend. So be sure to head to sponsor.net for the show notes so you can get in contact with Sarah. And if you are in New Zealand or would like to travel there, then be sure to check out a link to the partnership huddle in the show notes at sponsor.net. And a reminder that if you get in touch with Sarah, she can provide a discount code for you. Thanks again for tuning into the show. If you'd like a shout out, just like Jude, then be sure to get in contact. We really do love getting little messages from you just saying hi. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And if you want to connect with Sam Irvine, you can email him on sam at sponserve.net or you can find him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget you can follow Sponserve on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.